We're glad you're joining us here at Common Thread Online. This is a recording of our community gathering as we do each week to think together about the spiritual journey. At the end of the lesson, we open the floor for discussion, but we'd love to hear what you're thinking as well. On our website are directions to download our app. Once you have it, join the group. What are you thinking? We'd love to connect with you there. Enough values version of self. If you missed part one, you can have uh, you can catch up online. We've also seen through the lesson, thank you religion, for providing a history and a curriculum for us because the skewed belief self, it goes so deeply inside of us that we really can't let go of it directly. So a curriculum of incremental steps. Uh, last week we saw we can't let go directly of our evolutionary negativity bias, but we can practice intentional gratitude. And if we will practice intentional gratitude, and if we will do it over time, the practice will actually begin to disrupt that baked in instinctive bias that we carry in our brains, negativity bias. So today, same pattern, different bias. <coughs> Let's talk today about the accumulate stuff brain bias or the get stuff brain. We are all disposed to accumulate. We are all disposed to get stuff and for good reason. It is programmed into our brains. It's the default setting. Getting stuff is what we do when we're not paying attention to what we're doing. It is the default. Back when our brains were being shaped by natural selection, resources were scarce. And because they were, uh, people who could get stuff and then hold on to it once they got it, people who could get food and water and get stuff for making shelter and get tools for leveraging capacity and get materials for making fire, people who could get stuff and then hold on to it once they had it, they made it through the winter. And because they did, they survived and they had babies, and they passed their get stuff disposition on to those babies and eventually passed it along to us. Also, people who could get stuff and then hold on to it because they were more likely to make it through the winter were attractive to more potential partners, giving them more opportunities to make babies and make babies with healthier, stronger, more robust partners. So take that process, concentrate it for about a zillion generations and accumulating stuff has become the default setting. We just do it. We don't have to try to do it. We have to try not to do it. Now, we don't use the word sin very often as a community. I haven't looked lately, but it's probably still somewhere on our website where we put it a long time ago, mostly to get a rise out of folks that I mentioned, lifelong hobby. <laughs> we say sin is not that big a deal because good Christian folks just go apeshit when you say that. <laughs> we don't use that word very much because in church life it's kind of gotten corrupted. But don't be fooled, we talk about it all the time. I have been talking about it this morning when I talked about brain biases, when I talked about uh, how we developed a brain that doesn't serve us well. 
It got corrupted, though, by being reduced to a you-better-feel-bad-about-a-bad-thing-you-did kind of reduction. And that is just not that helpful, because as soon as you frame it that way, what usually comes next is some people start thinking to themselves that they are the good people, and then they get all looking down on-ish or all scoldy-ish toward the other people and come up with a message that says, you got to stop doing the bad things, you bad people. And again, it's just not that helpful. Much more helpful, I think, <coughs> is to imagine that construct, that idea that we use the word sin for, as instincts that you and I carry within us that are not serving us all that well and to recognize that we all have them and that we never had the option to not have them. If you know what the Bible says, you know that I just quoted Paul. All have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God, which means really we didn't ever have a chance to not wake up inside the brains that we woke up inside of. And you and I woke up inside of accumulate stuff brain. And most often, it just doesn't serve us all that well. It's not a big enough truth to build our lives on. But now again, <clears throat> it was not a bad thing that we accumulated stuff. It was not a bad thing, is not a bad thing, that you and I wake up inside of get stuff brains. It's a good thing. It, it is a you and I wouldn't be here if it hadn't happened kind of good thing. But that same instinct that in one context would have kept us alive is what we say all the time, true, but not true enough. Good, but not good enough. Now, in many way, ways, get stuff brain derails the very lives we want to be living. Many of us have never watched Marie Kondo but unless you live under a rock, you know the phrase, does it spark joy? <laughs> we have all become very aware that too much stuff stresses us. Too many things on the calendar stress us. Too many things in the kitchen. Too many things in our heads. Too many things in our days diminishes the quality of our lives. The very Evolutionary adaptation that made us stronger now makes us weaker. Now clutters our lives, clutters our days, too many things, too many appointments, too much stuff in our heads, too much stuff in our houses. Instead of us owning things, a flip has happened and things begin to own us and we own us and make demands upon us. Maintenance demands, care demands, cleaning demands, repair demands, and things demand headspace. Where are you gonna store those things? How are you gonna manage those things? And things create decision fatigue. We go about accumulating things so we have options, so that we have choices. But then those very options, those very choices begin to wear us down and suck up bandwidth because we've got too many choices and now we suffer decision fatigue because of the use of mental space. So, thank you, ancient tradition. A curriculum to help us get to the place we can let go. <clears throat> Small steps, incremental steps to help us get to the bigger stuff we need to let go of. In practical 
This practical practice in contemporary language is called voluntary simplicity. You might have heard the term before, but it's really quite an ancient practice. And because it is ancient, we've had time to do what religion often does, which is mess it up. <laughs> so many times the practice has grown corrupted, especially in the West, where we have taken on a toxic form of asceticism and given people the idea that stuff is bad, that possessions are bad, that wanting stuff is bad, that good people go without, don't want stuff. It's not about that. It's the same thing we saw last week. It's not about the thing. It's about what's happening inside of us. The practical practice is there to promote and build health, well-being, and peace within us. <coughs> now this particular practice, it's a little bit different from the others. The others that we have missions, the others that show up in working the circle, all of those are often practiced as a daily rhythm or a weekly rhythm or a monthly rhythm. We do the thing and then we show up tomorrow and do the thing again or show up next week or show up next month and do the thing again. But simplicity is more like a linear project than it is a recurring cycle. Let me explain what I mean. To practice simplicity, especially living in our culture, we have to first make a plan. Part of that plan is then we set a schedule for the plan. Then, bit by bit, over time, we begin to execute stages of the plan. Uh, I read this book, and it really helped me kind of understand that as the approach for this practice. It's called uh, Seven, the ex an Experimental Mutiny Against Excess. Um, <coughs> It helped me understand that simplicity is better approached as a project than a weekly practice. This woman, her name's Jen Hatmaker, she recruited her family for a seven-month project, and they made a plan. Step one, identify seven areas of too much. So they identified too much food, too much clothing, too much buying, too much media, too many possessions, too much waste, too much stress. Step two then was to make a one-month plan to address each one of those seven areas. So for one month, they practiced eating only seven foods. Then he said, I did a little experiment. I thought if we were only, only going to eat seven foods, what would we choose? <laughs> Another month, they only wore seven articles of clothing. Uh, we also did that experiment. Turns out Denise would go with two pairs of underwear. I wouldn't. <laughs> Another month, only spend money at seven places. Another month, eliminate seven media types. One month, give away seven things a day and do it for 30 days. Now again, eating eight foods instead of seven is not more virtuous. It's not bad, that's not the point. It's not about the thing, it's about what letting go of the thing does inside of us. Voluntary simplicity is a practice of challenging brain instincts. So we make a plan. We make a plan to declutter our lives, to reduce the number of possessions that we are responsible to take care of. We reduce the number of commitments that we have. We reduce what we consume because uh, it isn't on the fine, it's on the fine print we hardly ever see. When we consume things, we don't realize that it comes with a whole bevy of unseen requirements, a whole bevy of unseen demands upon us that we usually don't factor in. But thank you again, <coughs> religious curriculum, a practice, simplicity. Make a plan to give ourselves time 
to reduce what we possess, to reduce what we consume, so that we spend mindfully, so that we put things on our calendars mindfully. Bit by bit, we simplify. Bit by bit, <coughs> we reduce distractions. And bit by bit, we become more aware of the choices that we are making. And we make those choices more mindfully. This practice, simplicity, is in the curriculum to help us live more mindfully, more beautifully, more peacefully. Here's what I hope today's lesson does. I hope it gets us to start thinking about making a plan, maybe over the course of this coming summer. I hope this lesson sparks conversations that we have with one another or with friends and family, people that we love. What would it look like to make my life 5% simpler? What would it look like to make my life 10% simpler? How might I do that in a one-month kind of way? How might I do that in a seven-month kind of way? How, I might, how might I do that over the course of a year? Now here again, <coughs> like I said last week, Google is our friend. There are no shortage of ideas on Google about how to make life simpler. Ideas and coming up with ideas, that is not the hard part of this equation. The hard part is deciding. The hard part is making a plan. The hard part is having enough conversations so that we actually make a good plan. Uh, the hard part is setting reminders in place so that we stick with the plan once it's made. That's the hard part. Denise kind of led our family into this practice early on in our lives, and then she kept track of the plan. Uh, when we would uh, you know, dig our heels in a little bit, she would often do it on her own without us involved. But the plan was go through one room once a month, set the reminders, map out which room is going to happen which month, and ask the question, what do we have that we do not have to have? What do we have that we do not have to be taking care of. Then, after we had done that first year, she said, that was good, let's do it again. <laughs> so we did it again for another year. Same rooms, same questions. We actually did that several times over several years. What do we have that we do not have to be taking care of? So, <clears throat> one morning a month, the, the, the plan was get emotionally up for the job. Because honestly, getting rid of stuff is an emotionally and mentally demanding process. So you've got to get yourself in the position, in the mindset. She calls it the brutal mindset. Let's get there. So that we are up. We're emotionally ready for this thing. And now that we're up, let's do it. We go into the room and we try our best to be cutthroat. That was her word. Then out of that, we would say, all right, there's a pile. And now it's in the garage. And then... One afternoon, later that month, now we've got to deal with the pile. Now, when we had time, we would carefully curate the pile and give it to people that we cared for. <laughs> but we were raising kids. We never had time. So we took it over to the thrift store over on Six Forks and we would drop it off on their loading dock. <laughs> and the thing is, the process worked and did what the process is supposed to do. It did simplify our lives. And we did because Denise kept bringing us back to it and back to it and back to it. She took on the, the understanding that this is a project that we do again 
and then we do again, and then we do again and again. And simplicity is like that. <coughs> and sure enough, over time, less stuff, less stress, more peace, but more importantly, the practice changed us. It made us more aware of what stuff does to us. It made us less attached to stuff, more willing to live in a different way, less hijacked by those brain instincts, which again, that's what the letting go curriculum is all about. So, indwelling divine, may we be a year from now living simpler lives, less hijacked by instincts, more at peace. Amen. If these recordings help you move forward on your spiritual journey, we hope you'll take an ownership stake in the community and support the health and well-being of the community. Go to our website, commonthreadchurch.org. The donate button is right there on the top. Thank you.